Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I worked for a Lifeline for five years, a, a telephone counsellor, and um, there's so much pain out there. Everything we can do to relieve that somehow has to be done. That is fund manager Jeff Wilson. And this is episode 225 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg, and this is episode 225 of the show with Jeff Wilson. He's the chairman and founder of Wilson Asset Management and the Future Generation Companies. Uh, more about Jeff in a moment. He's a finance guy. I'll take you through it. If you're new, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. I'm Osher Ginsberg. I work on telly in Australia, most recently counting roses on a show called The Bachelorette, but soon to be counting even more roses on Bachelor in Paradise, which is just around the corner. Now, that is my TV job. And while I love my TV job, me and some other great people also make this podcast every single week and have done every single week for the last 224 weeks in a row. And we do it in an effort to bring authentic conversations to your ears and hopefully have us all learn a little something or, you know, maybe just think about things a little differently because paradigm shifts are important. They allow you to see more of the world around you. I'm a big fan of them. A big thanks to all and sundry who shot me a photo of what they're looking at while they listen to this. It's a silly thing I like to do here, but I really get a kick out of it. Just you listening to this on a phone. There's one of you that listens on a laptop, but the, all the other thousands of you listen on a phone. Uh, there's got a camera in your phone. Take it out. Take a photo of what you're looking at while you listen. What are you doing while you listen to this podcast? And send it to me. Send osher email at gmail.com. I always get a kick out of that. 
A big thanks to the people that reached out this week about going tech-free for the first hour of the day. It's nice to see that a few of you are giving it a shot. If you're new, uh, I do have a job that's quite visible on the telly, and I live with a different brain in that I have an anxiety disorder. I also have obsessive-compulsive disorder, which is a cracker combination sometimes. I'm a lot healthier than I used to be, which is really nice. Uh, largely in part to great doctors, great meds, the incredible support of my wife and my family, and deliberate and chosen habits in my day that work to alleviate how things can go sometimes. Things like eat, eating, sleeping, and exercise. All right, they're, they're all very, very important to me. And I do all three deliberately and precisely on a daily basis um, because I know if one of those three things slips, then things start to fall apart. But in the last, uh, about three months ago, me and my doctor have uh, decided and worked together and chosen to see how things are going off meds. So I've been off meds for three months. And since then, I'm also working more towards a daily meditation practice, which is working out okay. But most recently, I'm also taking an hour off my phone every morning. Like I told you last week, those emails and things, they will still be there when I do eventually pick it up. If something is truly urgent, guess what? It's a phone. It will ring. Yeah. <laughs> now, what I do with that time in the morning, uh, which I, I do set my alarm a little earlier so I can get up and do that. What I do with that time in the morning is I write. And this week, I tried something new. I've been, I've been ruling up a page in my exercise book that I do the writing in, like put a line straight down the middle and on the right-hand side, put another line kind of from the middle to the edge of the page, about halfway, splitting it halfway down on the right-hand column. And I start on the upper right-hand side in the box I've just created. And I write 10 things I'm grateful for. I do that every morning. That helps. It's a deliberate practice. It's been proven to help your, your, your day. And, you know, I'm starting to do it every day. And then below that, I write a thing uh, which my friend Nick Bishop showed me how to do. It's a thing called your start-stop-keep list. So today, what are you going to start doing? What are you going to stop doing? What are you going to keep doing? Because every day we have a chance to change our course. Every day we have a chance to change the way that we feel about what's happening around us. That is the most powerful part of being human. We get to change how we feel. Sorry, if we have a healthy brain, we get to change how we think about what's happening around us. And writing my start, stop, keep list is a way to bring that deliberately into practice every day, to make those active choices every day. So I'm not just ending up as a repeating lump of habits that sleeps and eats my way through until the end of time and just doing loops of habits again and again, like I'm one of the people wandering around Westworld. I'm, found, I'm finding that doing the start, stop, keep has as kind of helping me just go, oh, hang on, yeah, that, that thing, I don't need that anymore. And you know what I'd like to do instead? I'd like to do that and just kind of switching those habits out. So I'm trying to do that. It's, you know, it's all intentional and doesn't work in practice perfectly. Of course not, but, you know, just doing my best. And in the left column, the long one, I just dump out all the mess and junk and fear and whatever is swimming around in my head, which, you know, because I have the brain I have, I have it happens. And it takes about 15, 20 minutes to do the writing part. It's actually helping. I always feel better after it. Uh, I know that's not the only morning routine in the world. There's other morning routines um, to get your brain kind of focused and primed and ready for the day. If, if you've got a different one, I'd love to know about it. You can shoot me an email, send us your email at gmail.com. Um, 
And speaking of, you know, anxiety and fear and all that fun stuff, um, this week I had another experience of feeling the fear and doing it anyway. Uh, not to ignore danger or put myself or others in peril, but to recognize, like really recognize that the fear of action around something that intimidated me was actually worse than what happened when I eventually took that action. It's the same every time, and I forget every time. But it's worth me writing it down so I remember to do it next time. When I feel the fear, what I tend to do is I'm trying to, and this is de- again, it's a deliberate thing. When I feel the fear, I, I try to check with someone that doesn't have my brain, ask, you know, find out first, are they fine? Is this an okay thing? And then what they think of my proposed course of action, does it sound reasonable? And if they go, yeah, actually, yeah, that'll be all right, I kind of grip my teeth and go. And so far, it's been the same thing that happens. The things that do happen as a result of me moving into that fear are way less frightening than the fear that existed around making that move. It must be a trick that our brain learned to keep us safe back in the day, back when we were running from lions and tigers and bears. But it's important to challenge it, I feel. Um, and I'm lucky that I do have someone to check with. I'm very lucky that I have um, my delightful wife who's very clever, very passionate, very compassionate, very smart, and very calm. <laughs> so it's good to have her help. Anyway, I thought I'd check in and let you know what's happening this week. Let me tell you about my guest today. Jeff Wilson is a noted figure in the Australian finance industry. He's the founder and chairman of Wilson Asset Management. In the last year, Jeff was named an officer in the General Division of the Order of Australia. So he has AO after his name. Yeah, he has AO after his name. And he's, he was awarded that for services to the business and finance sector, professional financial bodies, and the community as a supporter of charitable foundations, which you're about to hear about. Now, I don't know about you, but I never grew up knowing anything at all about finance or the stock market or investment even. It just it just wasn't around me. It was only later in life that I started to meet people who actually knew what all the little numbers and charts in the stock exchange meant. Um, it was only later still that I started to realize that, oh, these are actually jobs actual people have, and they work their way up to these jobs. They work very hard, and they're very, very clever, and they make careers out of this, out of this, this thing. And Jeff is one of those people. Now, I wanted to talk to him because I was fascinated by not only his career path and how a life in the finance world can build into an incredible career as Jeff has built for himself. But also, I was really fascinated to talk to Jeff because of how he and I met. Jeff created the Future Generation Investment Company and the Future Generation Global Investment Company, and he created those two as a new business model. And that business model is is, is a way for the funds management and finance industry to make a significant and ongoing impact to the community. So loosely how it works is that future generation fund managers, they don't charge the management or performance fees I was talking about before. This allows both of those companies to then donate 1% of the assets to support charities each and every year. And what that does is it provides an ongoing source of funding for Australian charities, which focus on children at risk, which is the future generation investment company that supports 14 charities, and youth mental health which is the Future Generation Global, which supports eight charities, including SANE Australia, which is where I'm at. Jeff, I sit on the board at SANE Australia. 
Now, listening to Jeff's story and how he built a career in an industry that I knew little about was really fascinating to me. But hearing how he was affected by the time he spent working as a lifeline counsellor and what that drove him to do, that was truly the most incredible part of this conversation. Jeff's clearly a very successful man. He's worked very hard to get where he is today, and yet he still found time on a weekday morning at 9am to come over to my apartment and talk about his life, talk about his career, and talk about why he does what he does. I'm really grateful Jeff spent the time. I'm stoked that you get to hear this today. Enjoy this conversation with Jeff Wilson. How are you this morning, Jeff? Yeah, no, pretty good. Thanks, Thanks for coming around, mate. Yeah. You're an incredibly busy human being. Oh, hey, don't, 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 don't be, don't be fooled. Really? No, it looks, it looks, yeah, it looks a lot on paper, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, my wife's reading a, a book at the moment called The Essentialist, and yeah, to me, and what I'm trying to be is a bit more like that. Is you know, sort of cut out the noise. Yeah, and you know, in terms of what you're doing or what you're focused on. Yeah, you know, just try to be totally focused on that. And what 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 did noisy look like? What have you what is have you gone to a point where you're like, oh, this is too noisy. I've got to go. Oh, oh it's more. Um, I suppose as a type of person I am, if someone rings me up and says, "Look, Jeff, I wouldn't mind to have a coffee." Mm. Yeah, you know, then I'm happy to have a coffee. You know, maybe they're starting up a, a funds management business. Maybe they want advice on something. Uh, and it's really trying to focus on one thing and and. I still like having a coffee because I still I like the human contact, mm. um, but it, it's it's probably there's a, a group of people that you know, maybe you can you know, have a quick phone call with rather right. than sit down with a yeah you know, sort of a half hour coffee which always goes into an hour. I mean, to me, the weird uh-huh. thing about meetings I don't know in the corporate world. You know, at one stage, I thought if I had my news resolution was to have half hour meetings because then I'd have double the amount of meetings per annum. But you start with the first meeting and it'll always go a little longer and yeah. for some reason meetings in Australia, they go for an hour. Yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> Did you uh, – we are in the, uh, the, the delightful eastern part of Sydney. There's yeah, the, beautiful. There's a Pacific Ocean out there, which right. is really quite nice. Beautiful view in, in the penthouse. Wow. <laughs> a very modest penthouse. <laughs> Let's call it that. Let's call it that. It's a double brick thing from the 50s. <laughs> We can see the water from our house, which uh, the water's, you know, thankfully global, so we can see it's about two k's away, but we can yeah. see it. We can see it from here. Uh, what part of the world did did you happen to grow up in, Jeff? In Melbourne, yeah, yeah, Melbourne boy, yeah, yeah. Which part of Melbourne? Uh, Melbourne around Melbourne Glen Iris, just oh. um, yeah, Burke Road and Melbourne Road, just yeah, just lovely, around there. lovely, yeah, not nice, yeah, sort of Melbourne. Middle class suburbia. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, absolutely. All that kind of dark brick, all that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, nice right. out there. Yeah, I, so I was one of six kids, so. Wow, which was, number? I was number three, so, oh. you know, sort of middle child. Yeah. You know, they come with their own challenges. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, so, yeah. wow. So, how, what's the age range between the oldest and youngest? Uh, let's see, 14 years. So it goes. Elder brother, two years, elder sister, two years, then me, uh-huh. and then there's a bit of a gap. Then I've got another sister, another sister, and a younger brother who's 10 years younger. Okay, so you, were, yeah. so you were well and truly like at school and helping with kids and helping with babies when you were a young boy? Well, actually, the weird thing is I remember, and I must have been very young, probably you know, four or five, 
I remember there was a period where I thought I was the youngest. And I remember when my my next sister, now number four, came along, I thought, damn it, I'm not the youngest anymore. Now, I don't know why I've got that memory. It's quite bizarre. <laughs> I think I think we've all had that. I had that. Uh, actually, it was it's my brother's birthday today. Forty years ago today, oh. I, I remember going, "Oh, I'm not the youngest one anymore." There's another <laughs> now. I'm not the baby. Damn it. I was yeah. four. Yeah, yeah. You know? no, no, there must be. We must in our head. Maybe someone says that, and we hear it. But how do we know that we had a significant significant preferential position? <laughs> well, well uh, what uh, business were your folks in? Oh, dad was a doctor. And mum was a nurse. Oh. And then that's how they met. You know, they, they got a great story. Yeah. I think the Alfred Hospital, mum would say, I think mum was coming out of the toilet and dad was going in or something like that and say they're just sort of their paths crossed and yeah. that was sort of the, the start of the, the romance. Yeah. My, same, my, both my parents are doctors and they, they met at a, um, you know how they were, I don't have it really anymore, the residence halls yeah, where they would yes, just have yes, this. Yes. It was at Stoke-on-Trent when they were both living in the UK. Oh, um, right. Yeah, they, there was a party in the oh, residence hall. Are you a pom? I, I was born there. Oh, great. But, uh, so yeah. I, have, I have a spare passport in case yeah. I need to travel to other places that great. don't like some of the stamps on my other passport, right. uh, which is handy. Um, but no, I came here when I was four or five yeah. months old, I think. Yeah. Oh, so you've got a similar... You got a similar problem that I have. Yeah, I was actually born in New Zealand, uh-huh. but I only lived there three months. All oh, right. See, my elder sister, dad was, because in those days in medicine, and well, oh well, your parents from over there. Were your parents English? No, no, no. Oh, Australian. No, no. no uh, World War Two. Everyone ended up everywhere. Oh, okay. But the best training was in the UK, so that's where they went. One hundred percent. Yeah, and it was fascinating because my uh, father, he was in the UK where my elder sister, who's two years older, she was born, mm. and then they're on their way back to Australia, and mum's side of the family come from New Zealand, so I think they're on a boat that went via New Zealand and sort of mum stayed there, had me, and then came back and met dad back oh. in Melbourne. So, yeah, so I had three months in New Zealand, so that, that's why my <laughs> accent isn't very strong. That's probably why your English accent isn't very strong either. No, I did have one until high school, and then it was fairly evident that getting around with a, a British and English accent. Yeah, that knocked out of you. No, 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 pretty much. <laughs> well, I learned I learned to speak English from two people who spoke English as a second language that they learned in you know very hoity-toity parts yeah. of the world. So that's anyway. Right. Uh, so how yes. old how old were you when you kind of had an idea about uh, like you didn't go into pure medicine? Uh, yeah. Where did where did you get an idea about what am I going to do after high school? Like, when did it first start to interest you, the idea of, like, uh, education beyond high school? Well, I, I suppose as the eldest does, they tend to follow in. Were you the eldest? No, I'm number two. Yeah, as your eld, uh, uh, brother or sister? Big brother. I'm one of four boys. Yeah, and is he a doctor? No, none of us. Oh, okay, okay. Because my elder brother, he's a doctor. Uh-huh. Elder sister, she was a nurse. And sort of, so I was next. So, yeah. I mean, we learned subsequently that we're trying to make our way and somehow be different to everyone mm. else in the family. So in terms of education, I just kept doing what I did at school. Yeah. I like I liked science. I liked animals. I, I actually wanted to be a vet, mm-hmm. but my marks weren't good enough in HSC. And so then I, um, you know, after sort of not doing very well in HSC, uh, I ended up doing science at La Trobe Uni. I got into that. And then after I finished that, I was going to go and do vet science. Um, and actually, I got into Massey University to do vet science in, in New Zealand. 
Yeah, that was in, in those days. That were the that was the best sort of vet science mm. university. But then, uh, you know, I couldn't. I had to be living in New Zealand for a couple of years, and so after my science degree, I thought, oh well, maybe I'll you know, get a job. Uh, ended up looking around. You know, this is early eighties. Yeah, uh, things were a bit tough. Interest rates, I think, were you know, 15 percent. Unemployment was vast. Yeah, it was yeah. was high, and it was tough to get a job. So it took me about a year to get a job and ended up getting a job working in a, a funds management um, operation at Scottish Amicable uh-huh. in Melbourne. And, yeah, re- really I was going for any job, you know, yeah, you know, trainee, manager at McPherson's. I you know, went for um, oh, Joe White Malting as an industrial chemist, yeah, any any job. And that's the job I ended up getting. In. Right. And my dad was always into the stock market. You know, oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, what happened is his father was a doctor um, and he ended up, um, when he died, um, he left. He, my father had a choice either to have shares that he had, his his father had, in Mount Morgan, which is a gold mining company in those days, or, or get cash. And dad took the shares. He loved the small mining companies as an investor. So every, every day when I'd come home from school, well, Dad wouldn't be there, but eventually when he did come home, he'd sit down and read the paper and he'd, he'd look at, you know, one page in the paper, which is the one with all the numbers on. Tiny, yeah. tiny little font. Exactly. Idiot, right. idiot. Yeah. I remember my grandmother listening to the radio with this massive magnifying glass looking at these little things. Yeah. That's right, yeah. And and I remember, you know, probably early teens, you know, saying, what is that? And he sort of says, oh, that's the stock market. And so I remember looking down all the, all the prices and I was trying to find one that I could afford to buy. And there was a little, there was a company called Cox Brothers, who was actually a retailer in Melbourne. Um, I subsequently found out, and that was trading at one cent. So I thought, oh, well, I could afford that. And then I remember oh, probably, you know, three to six months later, I, I looked at the paper again and I was looking down. And then I actually, it was, then it was trading at half a cent. And then, Another time I looked, it was back to one cent. And I thought, geez, if I bought it at half a cent and it went to one cent, I'd make 100% of my money. Probably a little bit like cryptocurrencies at the moment, people yeah. are thinking. Uh, and then um, I remember a, a few months later, I looked down the list and I couldn't find it. And I said, Dad, where's it gone? And he said, yeah, the company's gone to the liquidation. So uh, it, it sort of, then it sort of, in terms of investing in retailers, it sullied uh, my view of. Yeah. Yeah, retailing is a tough business. But, but you were able yeah. to put it together that, oh, if I put money into this, like a share of this company yeah. and it's at 0. 0.00, 0.005 per share yeah. and then, you know, a month later I look at it and it says like 0.01 per share, that's yeah. a that's yeah. a double of, of my yeah. money. Yeah. Oh, okay then. And so you yeah. kind of got this four point, uh, stocks go up, stocks go down, stocks yeah. go up, stocks can vanish. Yeah, so yeah. within a couple of months, you had kind of the basics. <laughs> yeah, well, a little bit. And then Dad was, and, and, then, and then actually, I think around that time, well, maybe when I bought my first share, and my dad, you know, he lent me the money to buy my first share. Uh, after I'd done that, he, you know, he had a study, brought me to the study, and said, "Look, Jeff, I just want to show you this. Got a, a box, and he opened it up, and there were a whole lot of share certificates in there. And they were the days where you had share certificates." Mm. And he said, see all these? They're worthless. So he's sort of trying to tell me, if you're investing, there are risks. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, dad's dead. He's been dead for a while now. But I found the box, so I've got, I've still got the box with a few of his old share certificates in. Wow. So, yeah. so, but when you got a job at this, uh, oh, Scottish Amicable, Scottish yeah. Amicable, yeah, it wasn't. You, you kind of had an idea of what they did, but oh, very little. I mean, yeah. to me, the the tough thing is when you go for a job. You know, like anything, uh, I'm sure. You know, males tend to do it a bit more than females. You know, they look at the the requirements in the ad. And they'll sort of bluff half of it. And yeah, when I you know, went for the job at Scottish Amicable, you know, of course I'd prep myself. So you know, when they said, oh, what interest do you have in the market? Oh, look, a lot of interest. My dad's this. I own some shares. And then, then to me, the funny thing is I ended up getting the job. The first two days, my then boss, you know, Chris Walker, Chris said, look, Jeff, just sit down and read this research about various companies. So I read it for two days. And then after that, he says, well, I just want to understand how much you know. And there's a lot of you know, jargon in the, in the equity market. And he said, do you know what a PE is? And that's price to earnings ratio. And I said, no. And he said, do you know what earnings per share is? And I said, no. And that, they're sort of the two basic measures on how you value a company. So he realised that I knew nothing. <laughs> but I had the job and, and luckily enough, I was able to but he liked you and he had the, the you were able to kind of learn this on the go. Yeah, and, and I was a uh, I was a trainee. Oh, okay. So yeah, yeah, like yeah, I wasn't yeah, I was yeah. I was in at the bottom and Right. So yeah. from from there though, it's, it, did things accelerate fairly quickly? Did you get to oh, it pretty quick? No, no, no. Like it, it all the way through you learn lessons. Mm. And particularly, you know, you're in your early 20s and you're just on this enormous learning curve. Yeah. And I remember I'd been there for about a year and a half, and, and there was only three of us in the investment department, and, and there was a bit of bit of pressure. Yeah, we were, we weren't performing that well, and so the boss, you know, Don, he he got Chris in and sort of gave him a rev up and got, got myself in, and he said to me, "Hey, look, Jeff, I just think you could be a square peg in a round hole, particularly in your early days. That's a pretty strong message. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, maybe you've made the wrong selection." And then I remember that night the bro- brokers had a had a function on, and and I remember I went down to that function, and yeah, you know, just talking to everyone around there. And there was I ended up being in a group of probably there were four of us, and the other three in the group, yeah, you know, were significantly older than me. Yeah, you know, I'm twenty two, twenty three. You know, they were yeah you thirties know, or forties. And I asked them, I said, "What's the?" I said, "What's your view of the stock market?" And none of them could answer me really. And I thought to myself, "Hey, there's a place for me somewhere here in this, mm. yeah, in, in this industry." Right. Anyway, they went back to work, and then after a little while, decided that the, the people with the personalities tended to be on the stockbreaking side, uh-huh. where the farm managers in those days it was very doer, and they used to joke that the farm managers in those days sort of had personality bypasses. Uh-huh. These days, there's a lot more personalities on the funds management side right. because there's a lot more. You know, smaller organisation boutiques that have set up, and and it's really the power of the, I suppose, media has has made the power of the personality. Yeah. You mentioned that you didn't do so well at at HSC. Yeah. D- did that make it difficult for you to learn on the job? Were you, did you have to work a little harder? Well, we all probably think we've done well. Yeah. <laughs> and in those days in Victoria, if you didn't pass English, you failed. Yeah. Uh, and so I failed English, so I effectively failed HSC. Oh, no. Uh, and I went back to repeat. Oh, okay. And, and that was pretty brutal. 
I was sort of a week into repeating and then I I got in in second acceptances because my other my science marks yeah you know, my chemistry and maths okay they were reasonable so I got in got offered a couple of opportunities and mum and dad were away and so I accepted science at La Trobe Uni. So you left yeah. high school and went to uni within a week. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, well, mum and dad were away. And, and the funny thing is I found a letter just recently that my dad asked our next-door neighbours to sit down with me and convince me to, to repeat. <laughs> yeah. And it was a great letter that my next-door neighbour, Bob, had sent to dad and said, look, I sat down with Jeff. I tried really hard. Yeah. But his logic... I couldn't fault his logic. <laughs> yeah. Fair um, so, yeah. Just to uh, – because you've lived this your, your whole life. You were aware of what stocks were when you were a teenager, but it is still quite – it may be difficult to understand, but it's still quite a mystery to many, many oh, Australians. Yeah, This the, the idea that – what do you mean? I can own a, a millionth of a company uh, yeah. or a ten millionth of a company? And yeah. So just because you mentioned uh, stockbrokers and fund managers. Now, yeah. I might get this wrong. Stockbroker is the one that buys and sells the shares on behalf of me. So hey, I want to Correct. I want to yeah. buy a share in in this particular company. Yeah. Stockbroker goes, "Great. I'll go get it for you." And it comes back and goes, "This is how much yeah. it costs. This is how much it costs for me to get it for you." Great. Yeah. A fund manager is the one who goes, "Hey, I've got all this money from all these investors. Let's say I've got $1,000 from all these investors. I want to buy $1,000 worth of shares in all of these different companies." And you're going to go get them all for me. And then the rather than owning, so you may have, I don't know, 80 companies across that. Yeah. So the person who invested in the fund only has kind of one transaction. Is yeah. that pretty much how it goes? Yeah. So you, you became, you got into this time when I guess the caricature of the stockbroker in like the, the 80s stockbroker was you know, just really off the chart. You had a movie like Wall Street come out. You had, That's the latter part of the 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, the early part was a bit tougher. Yeah, No doubt. Yeah, yeah. But there was this caricature of it was yeah. the, the guy with the ponytail yeah. who's, you know, arrogant and doesn't yeah. care for anyone yeah. and, and insults people by throwing money in their faces yeah. and all this kind of stuff. Um, did you see any of that? Yeah, was, yeah That's really? That's true. <laughs> 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 no, I, I was like, so I started in the early 80s. Uh, as a fund manager, and then I went to breaking in '82. I wanted to, uh, you know, being from Melbourne, for some reason in my mind, I wanted to work in Sydney, and I wanted to work in London, New York. For some reason, they're on, on my you know, bucket list, and I ended up getting a job, moved to Sydney, uh, and then I ended up getting a job breaking in London and in New York. And I was actually in New York in the in late, in, around 87. I was, I was there for the 87 crash, yeah. Wow, okay. And, and, it, and it, was, it was extreme. I think they've written stories about the roaring 80s, like the roaring 20s. Yeah, you know, I, I was a stockbroker. We, we dealt with US clients. Yeah, you know, they, they were the, in Australia, you, you're very modest with your life, I, I think, and your expectations. You go to New York and it just takes it to another level. Like everyone goes around in limos. Yeah, I mean, I don't think when I grew up, I don't think there was a limo in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> I know we have them now. Yeah. Um, and it was just on another level. The, the company I worked for over there, it was owned by a UK company, which is owned by a US bank. The first Friday uh, I was there, we just moved offices. So they got a, a dozen bottles of Moe just to celebrate we moved offices. 
Now, so everyone had a drink after work and then went out and the next Friday, I think we'd all, we'd all, some of us had done an exam, you had an exam to work over there and they got another dozen bottles of Moe to celebrate that on the Friday. The next Friday, someone's birthday, so they got another dozen <laughs> bottles so every Friday and to me, that was just totally over the top and, and that is just a taste. Yeah. Oh, I've... <laughs> yeah, so of the, of the excesses and, and how they'd, like even now, you know, you go to New York. You know, I know we have Uber here and we have limos, and you know, but you know, all, all the breakers, they go around their limos and you know, they have limos waiting downstairs for an hour. You know, like my, my dad was brought up in the Depression. You know, he went around turning off all the lights. Yeah. Yeah, I've got that drummed into me. Yeah, you know, excesses. I don't have I'm, a Lincoln Continental idling downstairs for six hours while I'm up here on the phone, which is going to drive me three blocks to their helicopter pad, which is also idling, waiting to take me to my house in the Hamptons. That's, that's right, exactly. Yeah, where, where, where I drove, I drove my daughter's car. <laughs> yeah, so I didn't waste any money on Uber. <laughs> That's, what Uber X? That's that, that is <laughs> anyway, but but the eighties it was extreme, and, yeah. and just to give you a little taste of the extremity. So I, I'd been working there two years, and this was just before the eighty seven crash, and I hadn't taken a holiday. Um, and yeah, you know, when you're young, yeah, you don't need it. As you get older, yeah. Like to me, the longer you work, the more you need. And so, yeah, oh, you know, yeah. to me. You know, to keep going, you, yeah. need, you need more. A friend of mine who was working for another broker over there, Fred Oldfield, Freddie and I, we decided, look, we're not holiday for, holiday for two years. We need some new suits. Let's fly over to Italy and buy some new suits. That was it. The crash came. You know, the, the, the good thing is the market always sorts out your excesses. You know, it's like nature. <laughs> and then... Of course, luckily we hadn't booked it, but yeah. we just we'd booked a week off, and we just said, "Hey, look, we want to get as far away from the stock market as you can." In those days, of course, you didn't have mobile phones, and so we said, "Look, let's go to Egypt and let's go down the Nile because there'll be no communication." And that's what we did. Yeah, we did that. That was that was our week, right? Yeah. And you came back with a different perspective, I'm sure. Oh, uh, I'm not sure. Like we just we we're just away from that. Mm extreme period and, yeah. and being an Australian stockbroker after 87, you know, the US market fell 25%, the Australian market ended up falling 50% because we had a lot of entrepreneurs that went under in those days and talking to clients about that, that was tough and um, yeah, it was really tough. Uh, yeah, probably in the broking time, mm. you know, it, it, every day you wake up you can excuse the crash, but then when the Australian market keeps falling, yeah, you know, your clients say, "Well, hold it, I'm losing more money and more money." And uh, do you still yeah. does that still affect the way you make decisions today? The what you saw back yeah. in '87? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the tough thing is, as human beings, we've got so many biases, mm. and, and when you're investing, you try to understand what those biases are and work against them. Yeah. The funny thing about humans is, yeah, as an investor, we'll we'll cut our profits and we'll run our losses because the pain of losing money is is so, you know, it's probably 10 times the benefit of, of making money. So you end up making the wrong decisions. So so it, is it a case of reframing then? Is it a case of, oh, my God, oh, the world's ending, the market's falling 50% versus, wow, look, BHP, half price? You, you, 100%. <laughs> you, yeah, I mean, that's right. You, 
Right. You, you're Warren Buffett. That's what he says. <laughs> That's what he says. Really? Yeah, yeah. He says, you know, like if you're, um, yeah, if you're a hamburger manufacturer, yeah, and hamburger meat, yeah, you know, goes from, yeah, you know, a dollar to fifty cents. Don't you buy more hamburger meat? <laughs> <laughs> now, if you're making hamburgers, yeah, yeah, you know, so. You do, and and you're right, 100 yeah. percent right. For the man on the street, as an investor, the the ideal thing is buy a portfolio of companies that you might think are good companies for various reasons. You know, everyone has you know, a view, um, and then hold them for a reasonable period of time. You know, say a 10 or 15 year period of time, and ideally, don't look at the prices on a daily basis because then that they press some of your mm. your bias buttons. Uh, and what happens is you end up selling, say, at the bottom of the GFC, and and, and you're probably buying, you know, a couple of months ago. So right. just you, you you got to somehow work against your emotions, which is tough. When you see, I mean, I've I've only kind of briefly tried to self educate myself mm. about investing in mm. the last few years um, since I kind of got my mm. head together, um, but I, I get very confused. I'm looking mm. at charts. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Arts and candlesticks mm. and trend lines, and I, I just don't mm. know. As a fund mm. manager, when you're looking at this massive portfolio of companies, mm. when you see all those figures on that page, mm. what, what do you see? Do you can you do you see more than just money? Do you see the way a society's feeling about something? What do you see? Gee, that's pretty deep. Well, yeah, you're looking of, at thousands it, it, of decisions it, 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 being but made. In terms of, in terms of yeah, the the. Maybe let's do this in two parts. Okay. One is um, when we buy shares in the company, the the onus really is on the managing director. We're really trusting him, like he's the captain of the team, yeah. and and his ability to perform. So what what I like doing is reading their what they talk about in their announcements. You know, maybe look at their annual report. Yeah, you know, to me, it's a good way of trying to understand the person, trying to understand whether what they promise they deliver on, because uh, that's what you're doing. You're trusting them. So management is incredibly important. Secondly, it's the business. So to me, you know, we all – well, I'm not sure if you shop at Woolies or Coles or oh, – Oh, Coles because it's nearby. Yeah, Coles. Okay. So Coles is owned by West Farmers. Yeah, it, it's a it's a big percentage of their assets, so you'd have a view on Coles. Um, yeah, 
companies you come into contact, you'd potentially have a view on. And, you know, say the banks. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd have a view on the four banks. You know, one thing we do know is we all tend to pay them fees. <laughs> Lots. <laughs> exactly. So they are great businesses. <laughs> yeah. You want to invest in really good businesses, you know, trying to work out what they are yeah. um, and from your own experiences uh, and, and reading. Um, and then and you're, and you're also backing the person that's, that's running the company. We try to access it at as many levels as we can because you might ask the managing director something and it mightn't have filtered up from the bottom. Mm. And so you know, if I'm in a cab, of course, I'll ask the cab driver how things are going. Are you making more money than you did a few months ago or a long time ago, if any shop I go into, I'll always ask them, you know, how sales are they, how are they compared to six months ago or 12 months ago. They, I think they, some of them think I'm from the tax office. But I, I try to say I'm a fund manager yeah, <laughs> and I'm trying to get an understanding of how the economy is going. Yeah. yeah, so you try to get it as, as many levels. And we do. We do get the high-quality information very quickly. So – when you you, you, came, you came back to Australia after yeah. after, after working overseas yeah. and you, you you begin to build a life here and yeah. and things started quite to, to kick off for you yeah. uh, in a in a pretty decent way. When did you when did you strike out on your own and why did you do that? Yeah, uh, well, when I, it was interesting when I came back to New York, I, I actually thought um, I would find it really hard to come back to Melbourne where I, I came back to. Um, well, because there's no limos and helicopters. <laughs> you can't go to the farm for lunch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it was more – I actually thought work-wise it would be tough because it was a different role and I thought socially had, I'd have no problems. What I found was work, no problems, but socially I found it tough in terms of I had withdrawal symptoms. Now, in New York, you go every night. You go to a, a restaurant, the first time you look at your watch, because people are around, there's noise going on. Mm. The first time you look at your watch, it's midnight. Oh, whoops, I better go home. We're in Melbourne or in Sydney. On a Monday night, you go to a restaurant. Like at 9.30, you're the only one there. Yeah. <laughs> That's when you look at your watch. Yeah. And so around that time, for the first few months, I had to go out every night <laughs> just, just for a coffee or just for something. Like yeah. I didn't, you know, and uh, Tom Brentner, who was – uh, a good friend, uh, I met him through Ross Greenwood, and uh, yeah, Tom was my go-to man. He was he was single. I said, "Hey, Tom, what are you doing tonight? Let's just go out for a coffee for a couple of hours." And yeah, so that, that was that was that side. And then you were saying you, from you, a work perspective, yeah, 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 um, working for a while, yeah, and changed jobs. Um, yeah, came back. Uh, well, actually, came back and really found it pretty tough. Uh, around that time, met my then girlfriend, now wife, Karen. Met her in Melbourne, uh, and before then, uh, before the eighty-seven crash, I-, I was talking to a good friend, Richard Balderson. We were talking. He was in London. We said, "Look, the market's going to crash at some point. When it does, let's go. Let's do a year driving around Australia, and then let's dr- go around the world for a year because there'll be no nothing to do for a couple of years till the market settles down." Problem is, I didn't do that. Um, you know, ended up coming back to Australia after the eighty-seven crash. Met Karen, you know, fell in love, and then said to Karen, and I'd been, you know, I was eighty-nine now, been back, uh, you know, probably a year and a half, 
and said, look, hey, let's take a bit of time off. Yeah, work's tough. Yeah, there's not much work. Mm. Um, and let's, you know, let's go travelling. So we did that. Um, yeah, I'd only known Karen for a short period of time. Uh, and then we drove around Australia for Fun. nine months. Yeah, it was incredible. Incredible. What yeah. kind of car did you? Well, good old dad. Uh, Karen had uh, a little, I think it was Vitara. Yeah, yeah. the Suzuki, yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, and dad had a, a, a Range Rover um, and we said, oh, look, we'll go. I didn't have a car. <laughs> In New York, you don't have a car. And yeah. Come back and didn't have one. And we said, look, we're going to drive around Australia in the Suzuki and Dad said, you're not going to do that. So he gave, he, he gave us his uh, Range Rover to drive around Australia. <laughs> so he was, he was, you know, Dr. Wilson driving around in his little Suzuki. <laughs> <laughs> and that was nine months and it was great. Yeah. 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 It was a great experience. So when, when did you decide that, uh, obviously you, you moved, you know, Towards more towards the managing of assets oh, from stockbroking yeah. to funds management. Yeah, so you to come back over and why, yeah. why did you do that? Probably one thing to touch on is when I was driving around Australia, I realised that I had investing in my blood. It, it 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 can be very addictive, whether it's the addiction of the of the thrill of getting it right or against getting it wrong and winning and things like that. Um, and if I wanted to sort of somehow stay connected with the market because I, I knew I'd want to – I didn't initially know I, I wanted to work in the market when I came back, but um, eventually I did. And Ross Greenwood, who was then, I think, head of the BRW, he, he allowed me to write a column once a month. So when I travelled around, I sort of wrote a column just about you know, investing. Um, but the weird thing is – and I sold all my shares before I went um, – every day – on the ABC on rural hour at, at uh one twenty, they'd go through alphabetically through the stocks like ANZ, Aberfoyle, you know, what yeah, um and say the, the share prices. So wherever we were, you know, going across the Nullarbor or you know, the top of Australia, um twenty past one would pull over side of the road and for ten minutes I'd just listen to all the stock prices. So I realised then I had it in my blood. Yeah. And then and then the question was, what do I do afterwards? And then I came back Got a job, you know, worked for a broker, um, then Prebase in Australia with a few other people and, and worked there for a period of time and, and, um, you know, for, for quite a period. And, and then I probably, I had my daughter, Amelia. Um, she was four years of age and, yeah, you know, for breaking it is tough, you know, particularly institutional breaking. You get into work at seven, seven thirty, you know, the long days. Um, and I just, like, something didn't gel with me. Yeah. Um, a, I was managing people, and I had, you know, we had Melbourne, Sydney, we had London, New York, uh, we had people in Paris and Switzerland at some stage, so it was very demanding. Uh, and I sort of just, I tried to, a number of things came together at the same time, and, and probably realising that, you know, what's important in life, and trying to work out what balance is uh, and understanding that I wasn't having breakfast with my daughter and, and she was four years of age. I turned 40 and they say you know, around 40 you sort of go through a bit of a... Yeah, there's a shift. Yeah, a shift and, you know, what is important and, you know, I want to balance. And, and it was probably four or five things. That, that what was important was stimulus, which, which, you know, you get stress as well. 
Uh, I wanted flexibility. I wanted to be able to travel. And I wanted that work-life balance. And, and that's when I was trying to work out how do I do it. And, and around that time, I was having lunch with Tim Hughes. And, and Tim uh, was managing Reg Grundy's money. Um, and, uh, and Tim said, look, why do you keep broking? And, and I, I was saying, well, it's sort of like the fur-lined mousetrap. Yeah, I'm getting incredibly well paid, but it's killing me. Uh, and he said, why don't you do something else? What, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I love the market. I'd l- like to manage money. Um, and he said, well, okay, yeah, I, I'm sure I'll talk to Reg and we'll give you $10 million to manage So if, if you want to. Um, so then all of a sudden I had this choice. And so with that, I could probably achieve all those things. And then around that time, we we all want to write a book. Everyone's got a book in them. Um, You you usually want to own a restaurant, write a book, I don't know, own a race. There's various things that you may have in you. Um, Around that time, I I wanted to write a book and a few other things. And I'd I'd read this book called The... um, I think it was the empty raincoat or something like that. And it talked about how the world's going to change uh, and how working is going to change and how you're going to have a portfolio of jobs, um, how people that work for an organisation, they'll expect more from them, but other people will work for a number of organisations at the same time. And I, I sort of like that idea of a portfolio approach. So I thought, okay, what I'll do is I'll start up a little funds management business. I'll go on a couple of company boards to get experience there and I'll write a book and as you know English wasn't oh yeah I don't think I'm bad at English <laughs> I think it was just a bad <laughs> result yeah um but I, I, a book I I wanted to write was one about investing yeah yeah because I, I loved it and I thought a great way of doing it was going around interviewing you know really successful investors and I was just it was a a similar book to what had been written in the US and I thought I'd do it in Australia. So, yeah, so the long and the short of it is I left my broking, um, set up a little funds management business and the funny thing is when I started, and this is, you know, January 98, well, I left broking, you know, latter part of 97, I went to Tim and said, okay, you know, let's start. We start. I start on January. I've got all the structures, the trust set up. Tim said, how much money are you putting in? I only had like my maximum net worth was half a million dollars or something like that. And uh, I said, half a million dollars? He said, okay, yeah, we'll put in half a million as well. So we started with a million dollars and so, yeah. That's, that's, that, but that's all the money you had in the world. Yeah, exactly. That was my yeah, – that, so that was my – as a fund manager, I was managing a million dollars like – and you get you – know, you, you, my fees were 1% at a 20% performance fee. So – like there wasn't much, there wasn't much income, but yeah. but over time we grew and and um, yeah, more Reg put more money in a, as we grew and um, yeah, and, and now we're managing, you know, from that perspective, we're managing yeah you know, two point seven billion. So yeah, that, that's right. So yeah, the, the, in, the in numbers tw- in twenty years, the numbers have changed. But but in 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 the funds management game, that's we're small. Yeah, you know, we're small. Yeah, you know, numbers are big. Um, yeah. But, yeah, the interesting thing is, so that was the fund management side, and, and I wanted to – I could have sat at home and done it, but I, I wanted to be seen as a – they call it institution or, you know, like a serious player. Yeah. So I rented an office in the city and, you know, so I wore the suit and companies came to see me. And in the early days, you sort of – when they said how much money you're managing, you know, you sort of had to 
yeah, have have a, ha, talk about the committed money. You know, uh-huh. that you might have had in your fund because otherwise people wouldn't have really taken you seriously. Yeah. So that was that. And then on the book, then um, Matthew Kidman, who was he was a journalist, he was business editor at the Sydney Morning Herald. I said, hey, look, Matthew, I want to do a book. Do you want to, you know, shadow write it or write it with me? And he said, look, let's do it together. Yeah. And we ended up doing that. And with another. Uh, another gentleman, Anthony Hughes, another journalist, uh, Masters of the Market, and we did a couple of editions of that. And then, yeah, I did go on a couple of the boards, but but initially I thought my funds managed business would just be a really small business, probably not managed more than $40 million. Um, but then as that grew and as I enjoyed it, um, you know, the, the sort of the other, the board seats and, um, well, we ended up doing the book. Um, and Matthew ended up coming, working with me for 13 years. Right. Uh, yeah, on the investment side. So, when you, sort of, I mean, obviously you're, yeah. you're talking about numbers that make make most people's eyes roll. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I know. It, yeah. It, it's 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 you know, but yeah, you there are people that do your job, and you're one of the people that does it. You know, yeah, exactly. And, and and the numbers they deal with, yeah, you know, uh, like I think was it Perpetual's got thirty billion dollars, or you know, they, right. they they are big numbers, right? They are big numbers. Yeah. Uh, but at what at what point did you? Obviously, things are going really well, and you you work very hard to to to, to get there. At, at what point did the idea of I mean, sure, people are always asking you, "Hey, can you you know buy a table at this gala dinner? Can you give to this charity? Can you 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 got cash? Come on, come on, can you help me out here?" At what point did philanthropy start to become? Because it's a very structured thing that you do now. At what point did philanthropy start to become a focus for you? I think uh, I suppose, and you're probably similar, like having medical parents, you know, they are they are looking after other people. Yeah, it's caring. Yeah, yeah. And, and regardless of yeah, who that's, they are. that's right. I remember before you know, Medicare came in. You know, I remember Dad. You know, would work a day a week for free at a hospital, and and I think I think most doctors doctors did that. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't that big on it coming in because then he gets paid for it, and he was happy to mm. do that. And and so and Mum was you know, being a nurse again on the caring side, and and she was involved with. You know some various charities, and so I think you've got it there somewhere. And and it was probably soon after, you know, probably in your early thirties, as you probably move up Maslow's hierarchy of needs in terms of you know you you've got a roof over your head, you got food, um, you know, and and now you know what am I going to do? And, and the interesting thing is, I, I turned thirty in New York, and I remember there was two other gentlemen that turned thirty in the office at the same time, and one of them said. Hey Jeff, what have you achieved in your first thirty years? And I thought, geez, I've had a good time. <laughs> what have I achieved? Who knows? And yeah, so yeah, so you're you're in your you're in your early thirties. I'm married. I remember we're out at dinner, you know, with a, cu- a couple of other couples at Mario's at East Sydney when it used to be there, and we're all talking about like how can we help. Like how, you know, the conversation was how can we give back? And then, and then what happened is I got called from a friend who, um, and, you know, I'm Melbourne-based. By, the, by then I'd moved to Sydney. Uh, in 91 we moved up to Sydney for work. That was breaking and then I ended up setting up my funds management business here. And a gentleman rang and said, hey, look, I- I'm going on a committee to raise money for the Matthew Talbot. Would you be interested? I- I'd only been up here a year or two. I didn't know. Who's the Matthew Talbot? Like, we didn't have the Matthew Talbot in Melbourne. Um, and he explained. I said, what is it? He said, yeah. First of all, I said, yes, I will. Yeah. Because 
I thought I wanted to be involved in something. And then secondly, he said, well, you know, and then I said, what is it? And he explained it's, you know, the old, old men's, you know, well, not old men, but men that can't, you know, are on tough times and haven't got accommodation and it feeds so many people a year, etc. It's a, re- a refuge. Yeah, down up, down on Bullamalee. And I said, look, I'd love to go on that committee. And I was the only stockbroker on that committee. Um, they were smart how they they set up the committee by industry. Mm. So someone from retail, you know, so, so they would focus on that. And then I sort of spent a bit of time with my fellow stockbrokers you know, that, that weren't on the committee that, that I knew had lunches, you know, stockbrokers like having lunches, and said, look, you know, how can we raise money for the Matthew Talbot? And they said, look, why don't we have an awards night? So I said, yeah, great. So we, so we put together an awards night and we said, look, We've got to raise at least $50,000. And so we had the awards night. It was a fantastic success. I think we raised $150,000. And so we're, we're on the way. And in theory, it just could have been a one-off. Mm. But, um, you know, I just thought, look, what a great opportunity. We can do it on a consistent basis. And then after a few years, I thought, well, look, you know, the stockbroking industry, where does it fit in society? Probably a lot of people don't necessarily understand that I suppose in financial services, you know, stockbroking or funds management, that they are, you know, they do give a lot back. Uh, and I said, look, why don't we, why don't we create, yeah, you know, the Australian Stockbrokers Foundation, and not only give money to Matthew Talbot because they had done the major redevelopment, but spread it amongst a whole lot of other charities. And you know, now that's been going what twenty five, twenty six years. And was that and- using your your skills and knowledge of managing money? Already, to then, how can we then manage some money that you know instead of pays dividends to a to an investor, pays dividends to a charity? No, no, no. That was no. That was just pure. That was just pure. Have an event, mm-hmm. raise the money, okay. and then distribute it out. Yeah, it was pure on the event. But like we've had during you know very positive times in the market, you know we, we could raise four hundred thousand wow. on a night, um, wow. and uh, yeah, we re- at least raise yeah you know, hundred and fifty probably. And then we did that, and then I became, see. Then I left stockbroking, mm. but I'm still. I find it hard to let go, so yeah. I'm, st- I'm still chairman of that. <laughs> well, of <laughs> even course. Though, and then I became a fund manager, and then I got approached by uh, Chris Grubb and, and James Pitts, who's on the Odyssey House board. Could they be involved in the fund managers? Sorry, in the stock in the stockbrokers. And I said, well, I'm a fund manager now. Why don't we create a fund managers dinner, and then? We'll create a fund managers foundation as well, and so now we've got them both mm. going, and they both have awards nights, and they both uh, give money to you know various charities. So tell, so tell me where because we came yeah. we came together through working with Sane Australia. Correct, I, I sit on the board at Sane Australia. Yeah. Uh, tell me about the idea of the business model behind the future generations investments. Yeah, uh, yeah. which is a, a, yeah. a really interesting way of yeah. allowing people yeah. to. Give money to charity yeah. at the same time as yeah. investing something for themselves. Yeah, uh, yeah, it, it is an amazing product, and it's yeah. You know, we were talking about investing before. If we we've picked the best fund managers that we believe in Australia or managing money in Australia or overseas, and you get access to them, and you get it for free. Well, sorry, you don't get it for free. You don't pay what they normally charge. Um, and it's this, this, the structure, and I'll, I'll talk about how it you know, came about, is what I believe is a win-win-win. Very rare you get that. 
and, and everyone says, oh, there must be a catch. And, and it's a win for investors because they get access to the best fund managers and they actually pay less than they would if they went with those fund managers. It's a win for the you know, sane and you know, the various uh, not-for-profits or, or charities because they get money on an annual basis and they get it effectively, if, if they do the right thing in terms of investing correctly, they get it forever. Uh, and it costs them nothing, you know. So, um, and and where we say it's a win for the fund manager is because the, and this is sort of where the benefit comes from as the fund manager, is because it gives them an opportunity to give back. You know, the fund manager, um, and and the reason it works is so. You know, we're a fund manager. We get paid for managing two point seven billion dollars. Um, if we manage another hundred million dollars for free, all it means is. When we buy a share, we've got to buy a few more shares. It actually costs us nothing. We don't have to employ any more people. So we give that capacity away for free. And then that allows, you know, instead of the money that we would normally charge or less than the money we'd normally charge, we allow that money to go to the charities. And that's why they're just fantastic models. You know, if you, there's, if you want Australian shares, Future Generation Investment Company, FGX is the code on the stock market. If you want international shares, Future Generation Global Investment Company, FGG is the code on the stock market. And, and I, I actually, I was in London where I saw that about seven years ago, sitting down in the hotel, reading, reading the FT, and I saw that a gentleman was setting up a company which is exactly the same. Well, we just copied his structure. Yeah, it was it was called Battle Against Cancer Investment Trust. Yeah, his focus was cancer research, but it was a listed company where everyone did everything for free, mm-hmm. and one percent, you know, went out to charities. And I just thought, what a great structure. So then, you know, I, I came and did it here, and yeah, and and the charities they focus on is is youth at risk, and youth mental health, and yeah, and and from my perspective is, um. Yeah, you know, the if if we could just you know, stop one person you know, from dying, yeah, it's a success. Yeah, um, yeah. Hmm. When I, it, it really, I find it hard. No, that's okay. <laughs> It's 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 okay. Yeah, because it's. I suppose the tough thing is, I worked for a lifeline for five years, a, a telephone counsellor, and um, yeah, the the there's so much sort of pain out there and and to me like everything we can do to relieve that somehow you know, it is um has to be done and, and to me one of the things that really disappoints me is the government just going through this exercise um and that's with FGG which is the one that gives the money to youth mental health, you just realise how grossly underfunded 
that is. And, and you think logically, like as, as an investor, logically, what do you want to invest in? You want to invest in your people. And and your people, you know, so in Australia, you know, your people are the Australians. So you want them to be physically fit and you want them to be mentally fit. So, you know, and because you want them, you want maximum productivity from them to make the most money for the country, <laughs> now, which makes it prosperous. It makes sense. It makes <laughs> so, sense. So, you, so, you... so the government, so the government, you know, going through this exercise, I realise the government's, you know, sort of spending, instead of spending a dollar on mental health, they're spending 50 cents. And why don't they spend a dollar? There's no votes in it. The stigma associated with it, and the more that can be destigmatized, then the more pressure they're going to be put on the government yeah. to like in, invest the money where it, where it should be. And and to me, it just makes me so sad yeah. that um, yeah, people have to go through you know what they have to go through, and then yeah. so 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 many don't get access to help, etc. Why did yeah. you become a lifeline counsellor? Oh, we, we it was really, you know, at work we were trying to work out, um, you know, there's one thing giving money and, and, of course, that's incredibly important. But then we thought, look, everyone needs to get involved um, and, yes, so we, what we decided at work oh, this is, could be 10 years ago, um, that we'll, yeah, everyone can have one day off a month to work for a charity and sort of get their hands dirty. And, and it, was, it was one of those things, yeah, yeah, um, we're sitting down at the table, we've got everyone in the office, yeah, I hadn't done my homework, <laughs> yeah, I didn't have a charity, we're going around, it comes to Matthew Kidman, he's from the country. Uh, he was before me and Matthew said, oh, look, I'll do, I'll do country suicides. So I said, I'll do city suicides. And then, um, yeah, then you go through the process. You, you know, do the, um, you know, do the course, you know, the counselling, because it's volunteer, it's all volunteering. Uh, and, yeah, I think, I used to do Wednesday afternoons, and they would they tended to be women, like and um, yeah, very powerful. Yeah. yeah, I mean, in terms of you, you, every time I finished, I realised just how incredibly fortunate I was. Um, yeah, the uh, it, it's it's tough. The interesting thing is only only sort of ten to fifteen percent of the calls are, you know potentially suicides, yeah. um, but they're, um, yeah, and, it, and it's like the average call goes for about 40 minutes uh, and it's... But you get to be there for someone. Yeah, that's the tough part. <laughs> Doing that makes you so different to probably so many other people in the corporate, the level of the corporate world that you exist in because you are remaining at a touch point to people way outside of your community. Yes. And you are 
you know, it's not dissimilar, Jeff, to you asking the retail person how's things going. You are, you're still, you're getting a pulse on, on what Australia is. But yeah. it also, how did that inform your decision-making through the week that, you know, here I am with this, you know, squillions yes. of dollars at my disposal, yet in the back of my head there's this person who lives in Naripto in South Australia who's, you know, yeah. having, a, having a tough time. And like, did it affect you at all in the way you were making your decisions through the week? Uh- I, I don't think it affected me from an investment perspective, yeah. but obviously affected me emotionally. Yeah. Um, because I just, well, first of all, every day when I'd finish, I just think how incredibly fortunate I was. A- and when you know, you're on the other end as a, as a counsellor, so you, you you have to be. Um, Strong, yeah. You, know, you have to be, um, yeah. You, know, you, you, know, you have to you know, go through the 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 process um, with them. Yeah, you, know, you have to, as you said, be with them. Yeah, you know, you're you're not trying to take them from the past where they may be into the future. Yeah, you know, you're staying with them where they are, and you know, it's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult because you don't want to do the wrong thing because you know that it is life and death. Um, yeah, so it's – yeah, it's, it's it, the, the, those calls, are, uh, yeah, a million things are going through your mind. If they say, look, I, yeah, that, that, I mean, they, they'll usually start – yeah, you know, if it's a suicide call, they'll start in a certain manner, and they'll give you potentially hints, uh, and then you need to ask them. Yeah, you know, um, you know, you're thinking of killing yourself, and and then they say yes, or yeah, you know, I'm in the process of doing it. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm going to do it, and then and then you, you know a million things go through your mind, and you're trying to think, well, what am I meant to do? Or yeah, now I'm meant to stay with them, and how do I do it? And yeah, and then you, yeah, you, know, you sort of go through that that process, but it's tough. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. It, might, it might have been tough for you, Jeff, but you were there for them. And yeah, because of you, you you know yes they, yes they made it through that day. Yes, 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 yes. And that yes, you figured yes, out, yes. A, but now that yes. you've figured out a way to potentially do that at scale, yes. is extraordinary. Yeah, and that's the exciting part. Yeah, I mean that is the exciting part because, yeah, and and, uh, and as I said, you know, when we we're talking earlier, and, and like to me, yeah, it, it's the emotion of, of of knowing that how fragile life is, and but how powerful a phone call can be. How yeah, powerful! Yes, yeah, yes. Oh, oh, oh. And 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 what I just hope, it's it's that you realise that it's that reaching out, and um, and and then the frustrating thing is that so many people, you know, that they're they're in such a, a dark place they can't. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Look, I am. I'm so grateful you came around today, mate. Yeah, no, I really thanks. am. It's thanks. been great to have you here. Yeah, likewise. Thank, thanks for coming to our little apartment. Um, uh, and I, I'm just so stoked that we get to work together. Yeah. Um, Me too. Hey, and I'm looking. Good. I'm looking forward to come here and sit on your couch and. 
Oh yeah, you know, watch come. the watch the next uh, next you episode. Want to come when, when, watch when, Bachelor in Paradise start when, soon. You want to come around and watch that? What? Well, I thought I thought the final I come to. Oh, you want? Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> Whatever you want. This is where we do it. You come sit on my couch. Uh, yeah, you great. bring your wife, bring your yeah, daughters. Beautiful. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know how much room we've got. We can. There's, no, 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 no. Just, there's only three yeah, of us no, here. No, 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 no. My daughter's in New York, and so I'll just bring Karen there. Oh yeah. Oh, that'll be yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, come no, around. Like we'll watch. We'll watch. Yeah. We'll watch when does it start? Classified. Okay. I mean, they don't even tell me. <laughs> oh, okay. No, no, no. They okay. don't tell me. It's they yeah. are the tightest kept secrets. Yeah, um, tough. Cool, man. I'm, yeah. I'm so grateful nah. you came around. Can Great I just take your photo really quickly before yeah, we go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, thank yeah, you, Jeff. Yeah. Okay. Cool, man. All right. That was Jeff Wilson, the chairman and founder of Wilson Asset Management and also of the Future Generation Investment Company and the Future Generation Global Investment Company, uh, available on a stock exchange near you. <laughs> it's fascinating. I'm fascinated by it. I know a lot of you will go, oh, I knew all this stuff. I, I, I never knew about it until only a few years ago. So I really find it fascinating. Thanks to everybody that helped me make this show today. A big, big thanks to Dr. Michelle Blanchard for helping me get this show happening today. Also, my show producer, Haley Van Spagna, who coordinated Jeff and I's schedules to meet so we could be in the same place at the same time. My audio producer, Andy Marr, for exceptional work on this episode. And, of course, my music this week, as always, by Toehider. Social stuff, all of the images and stuff you see, that's from Ellie Westaway, and I sat in front of a microphone and did the talking. Oh, I also hit record. Does that make me an engineer? Probably. I don't know. i got to go. Uh, have a fantastic week, whatever it is that you're doing, wherever in the world you're listening. Thanks so much for taking the time to be here. Have a cracking time. Until we talk next time, sleep well, dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.